Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Here's Dickow from the deep corner of the break. Uh-oh, uh-oh. It's on now. Downtown Dan connects. Every morning when I'm working out, I'm listening to your podcast. Keep up the great work. I mean, I've seen Dan Dickow hit some big shots in the NCAA tournament. <laughs> I got to salute you, man. Like, I've been watching you since I was in high school trying to mimic all your moves. Here we go with another episode of the ISO for SB Live Sports. I'm your host, Dan Dickow. Conversations with experts throughout sports, typically basketball. Today's is a very interesting and unique guest, someone who I'm really excited and interested in hearing more about both his upbringing and his passion for the game of basketball and just where it's led him to be in his life with all the different ventures that he's a part of. I first came across his name and his story uh, in the late 90s. Sports Illustrated wrote a tremendous article about him, and as a basketball junkie like I am, I read it cover to cover, the article, many times. So for me to now have him uh, as a guest on my podcast uh, is, is truly a unique and fun experience for me. I'm looking forward to hearing more of his story. The Jewish Jordan, Tamir Goodman. Tamir Hopefully that wasn't too long of an intro, but I'm really excited to hear a lot of your story. How How is life in Israel these days? We've got like a 16-hour difference right now, I believe. Yeah, well, first of all, it's such an honor for me to speak uh, with you. I've just been a huge fan of yours for many years, and I'm just so excited to be here. So thank you for that. Uh, life in Israel is fantastic. I'm so grateful that uh, my wife and five kids, we get to uh, raise our family here in Jerusalem. Uh, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in the world. I think it's the best place to raise a family, and I'm so thankful to be here every single day. You know, I touched on the many ventures that you're a part of, but going back to where you first burst onto the scene, and I learned about you with that Sports Illustrated article all those years ago, you're an Orthodox Jew who had a tremendous passion and a a skill in the game of basketball. Um, But as myself, uh, someone who has faith in in the Christian background and the Christian faith, we don't always know about different religions and and you being an Orthodox Jew. How did that impact your game growing up? And was it maybe a hindrance or maybe was it more of a benefit because it provided structure for you uh, in your early part of your career? 100 percent. Yeah, the religion and the faith uh, was was everything to me and, and helping me pursue my dreams as a basketball player. Cause like you say, it gives you structure um, during the good times, during the challenging times, uh, you know, so if you're playing really well, you, you can't be satisfied because you're playing for something bigger than yourself. And if you messed up or you got knocked down, you can't stay down too long because it's not about you. You got to pick yourself up. It's about something bigger than yourself. So it's a great, uh, having faith is, 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 in my opinion, is a great, great asset to helping uh, you pursue your basketball dreams. Um, I think, uh, you know, the challenging thing from the basketball side was that I can't play from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday because we observed the Sabbath. So during the week, like we're just so focused, it's almost like a rat race. And then uh, on the Sabbath, we just thank God. You know, we, we think about our, our purpose in the world. We think about refining our character, uh, being close to our loved ones. So we, we don't watch TV. Um, you know, we don't do anything electric. 
uh, you know, we don't play basketball. We don't work. We spend time with our family. We spend time with our God. We spend time with our purpose in this world and how we could better ourselves and better the world. So the challenge was, okay, I love basketball. Judaism's given me the green light to play basketball, but to play with the right intentions and in the right way. But um, under no circumstances was I willing to play, uh, you know, division one or professional basketball on the Sabbath. So that was the big challenge. And if I remember correctly with your story, uh, you were one of the top maybe 25, 30 players in the country. So you would have been invited to a lot of the high level uh, end of year high school all-star teams or all-star games. Uh, you were recruited by a lot of the big programs on the East Coast because you grew up in the Baltimore area, but you ended up going to Towson State. Was there a reason uh, because it was close to home? Was it a reason because uh, you look at the schedule and, and they would allow you to stay more true to your faith? What, what was the decision behind that? Yeah, exactly. Like I did get a chance to play at NBA camp and ABCD camp, and I won the co-MVP, uh, most valuable player of the Capital Classic All-Star Game. I got to experience all that, and I loved every moment of it. I got recruited originally to play at Maryland, um, which would have been their national championship team. Uh, and I told the coaching staff, because I grew up in Maryland, I committed right away, but I, I committed on the condition that I can't play on the Sabbath. But as time came closer for me to play at Maryland, it would be clear that if I wanted to stay and play there, I would have to play on the Sabbath. So I had a meeting with the coaches and I said, love the program, totally respect everything. But for Jewish people, Sabbath is more important than basketball. I gave him back the scholarship. And then Towson came and said, hey, you know, we could we could maybe change the schedule for you. The guys on the team asked me to come recruit you. That's what the coach said. And when he said that, I was like, wow, this could be like a really great fit because the guys want me to be there, not just the coaching staff. And and basically the sun goes down on Saturday pretty early in the winter in Maryland. So it was just a matter of instead of playing at 2.30 uh, in the afternoon on a Saturday on those, you know, five or six games, can we bump it up to like six o'clock at night and then the sun's down and I'm allowed to play. And that's what Coach Jazz was able to do. And I'm forever grateful to him at Towson University and all my teammates who I'm still in touch with till today for allowing me to live out my dream and do something that was seen as impossible and, and, and do it, you know, play division one on a scholarship without playing on a Sabbath. That was seen as impossible. And thanks to everyone at Towson, I got to live out my dream and I'm forever grateful for that. Well, we'll talk about your experience at Towson in a second, because I believe after your first year, the coach who recruited you left, but let's play the what if game for a second. That Maryland team, uh, that was around my era uh, at, at Gonzaga and, and a little bit at University of Washington before I transferred. Those were some good Maryland teams. Lonnie Baxter, Steve Blake, Juan Dixon. Uh, give us a little bit of, you know, scouting report on your game and how you would have fit in there because that would have been, from what I remember of your game, tying in with those guys, that would have been dynamite. Yeah, it would have been, um, like, so fun. I, I, I remember the open runs. Uh, they were incredible. Uh, you know, in the summertime, I got a chance to play down there, and it was just so fun. You are talking about Terrence Morris, Lonnie Baxter, uh, Juan Dixon, Steve Francis showed me around campus. I'm still in touch with Steve till today, still close with him. Um, uh, the, it was just incredible. Steve Blake was down there, uh, Drew Nicholas. It, it was it was amazing. It was just incredible just to play, just to play with those guys. I enjoyed every second of it. Um, and and I I I, th I think like it, you know someone who loves passing the ball and getting getting guys the ball where they like it best. So that they could put, they could score. Um, that that that's what I did. That's what I loved, and it was fun to play in the open runs with them. But ultimately, I went to Towson, 
And uh, that was a great fit for me and I'm forever grateful for that opportunity. But like I said, I'm still still very close with a lot of people at Maryland, especially some of the coaches, uh, Coach Billy Hahn, I'm, I love him, very close with him until today. Steve Francis, still close with him today. So it didn't work out the way most people thought it would work out, but I believe it was a, a hidden blessing for me and for the University of Maryland. And I'm glad that they won the national championship and I'm glad that most importantly, still have great relationships with them. Steve Francis is, uh, is a name I haven't heard for, for a while. Um, but I remember playing against him in the NBA on a number of occasions, unbelievably talented, um, you know, skilled, and he played with an edge that uh, if you weren't ready, he was going to go right at you. So I can imagine uh, that would have been fun to would have have had him as a teammate. You mentioned the ABCD camp. I went to the Nike camp way back in high school. The AAU scene is completely different now. Who do you remember playing against back in your high school era, travel AAU ball, the camp scene that you just looked at and be like, this guy's on another level? Yeah, I would say like a couple of people that always stick out in my mind. Well, I'm from Baltimore, so everybody, Carmelo Anthony, you know, at a very young age, we all knew everybody in Baltimore knew that he was extremely special. Um, there was a guy named Gerald Wallace. I don't know if you remember him. Yeah, uh, he was uh, very impressive. I remember seeing him at ABCD and just, wow, his quickness and his strength and his passion were very impressive to me. Um, there was another guy named Speedy Claxton. I don't know if it, people might not remember him, but he was so good before he got hurt. I think he got hurt his first year in the NBA, but I got a chance to play against him before he got hurt. And I remember just thinking like, wow, I understand why they call him Speedy Claxton. Like he was so hard to guard. Um, and, um, you know, those are those are some of the guys that, that come up in my mind. Uh, there's another guy who I'm really close with till today. His name is Michael Sleetney. He's a dear friend. He's probably my best friend. He ended up playing at Georgetown and then in the NBA. He was just so fundamentally sound. He was so great um, under the basket. He, you know, his shot fakes and everything were so were so uh, great. Uh, so those are some of the guys that I remember uh, coming up that for some reason they come to my mind uh, right away. So, some great names you mentioned there, Speedy Claxton being one of them. Uh, we were teammates for a short stint uh, when with the New Orleans Hornets, and he was a guest on the ISO maybe two months or so back. So glad that we could connect the dots a little bit. Uh, but, yeah, he was he was incredibly quick. He was somebody that was uh, difficult to deal with when he was matched up on you. Um, Want to go back now to have a, talking a little bit about kind of how you burst on the scene nationally with the Sports Illustrated article. Nowadays, it's all about social media. It's Instagram, it's Twitter. I don't even know anything about TikTok, but I know it's one of the big things. How do you, how would you have handled that quick rise to fame now versus kind of the slow that the print media was with Sports Illustrated back then? Yeah, I think the big difference was uh, the print media, you know, it kind of like, it meant something to us for like a while. Like when we were younger and like Sports Illustrated came and we read an article about Michael Jordan. So you, you like you said, you even said you read you read it over and over and over again because that that's the news you have and you're not going to hear anything else for like another week, really. Uh, so we lived with it. It like lit, when we read a basketball article, it, it lived within our hearts and our mind for like the entire week. Nowadays, it bursts so quickly, but you might hear like seven different stories in one day. So like you hear about it and it's really exciting and there's a lot of noise, but I don't know if it makes the same impact, you know, that it had on us. You know, when we were younger, I remember like NBA hoops, like the cards, like they had this one set where you could like um, turn the card around and it told you like a little bit about the player 
off the court, you know, and that was like so fascinating to read about Carl Malone off the court, John Stockton off the court, like, and we went to bed dreaming about it and thinking about it, or if like, if we watched like a highlight, I remember watching the games. So you watch the first half, you see Michael Jordan do something. I'd go out to the backyard during halftime and, and, and live what I saw. I only got to see it once or twice, maybe then through play. And then you worked on it. It was already in your soul and in your mind. And then my dad would call me back up. All right, the second half's back on. And then we, the next morning, you're just back at it. Nowadays, you could watch the players on YouTube. You could watch the move a million times, you know? So then you're watching another move and another move. Whereas us, it was like, I feel like it was really within us because we only had that one shot or that one article a week or that one time to see the play. Like, I, I'll always remember Michael Jordan switching from right hand to left hand. And my dad saying, oh, my God, just see what he's in. And then we saw it. And then we were downstairs working on it. But we only it was already in our mind. It wasn't like we could watch it over and over again. So print media is is a little old school but i feel like the uniqueness of it it was like embedded within us nowadays it's like so exciting you see all these highlights all these moves but you're bombarded with it all day so i don't know if it makes the same impact on you i don't know that's a tremendous way you kind of touched on you watch it you have a chance at halftime or a timeout run out real quick and try it and just get it burned in your memory so you could go out and do it again later uh that brings a lot of memories that uh, that i had doing very similar things you know, I, I look at um, my career and I would imagine that we would have been fairly similar as far as uh, team involved. Yeah, we had skills, but we also blended those individual talents to, to be able to, to impact our team with a win. Now, you being so good in your era of and growing up in the Baltimore area, um, how how did you blend your skills with your youth and your high school team, because if I remember correct and, and I read the articles correctly, you played on a team that was all of the same faith. And so they may not have had the same passion, upbringing, wanting to be successful at the game as you do, as opposed to if you went to say a private high school that was, uh, you know, more focused on basketball. Yeah. So that's a great question. So a couple of things like, um, first of all, like, first thing about a basketball player is you got to be confident. Like you got to be confident in what you're doing. If, you, if you're not confident, don't, don't get on the court. You can't get on the court and be successful. So my confidence on the court was that I was very, very dyslexic. I'm very dyslexic. But the doctor told me when he diagnosed me, he's like, it'd be very hard for you to read and write, but you're going to see things on the court that other people don't see. And that gave me so much confidence on the court. It didn't matter like when I was playing, who I was playing, where I was playing. It was very transferable. Like, so uh, that was my confidence. I was going to get on the court and I was going to get people the ball and, and, and we were hopefully going to win because we were sharing, you know, sharing the balls, like the most powerful thing in my opinion. Um, but in addition to that, I, I grew up, yes, I grew up all Orthodox, 60 kids in the entire school, but here's the thing. I grew up very, very blessed. I had the best coach from a very young age. I had the best coach who raised me. And I had a Holocaust survivor grandmother who who survived the camps four years, four years. She survived. She was one of the oldest Holocaust survivors in the world. She raised me. So I was raised around a lot of love uh, around a hero. She was an absolute hero. I saw what it took every single day to, to beat the odds, um, to never make yourself a victim and to, to try to bring light to wherever there is darkness, you know? And, um, so, so the combination of my family and, and, and my coach, it was great. And that's what gave us the difference, even though we were at all small Orthodox boys school, because I, I would, my coach, coach Katz, thank God, I've still touched with them till today. We'd be watching film. I'm like eight or nine years old. 
the phone rings and, you know, his wife would be like, uh, Bobby Knight's on the phone, wants to talk to you about, you know, da, 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 da. Like, so I grew up like, it, you know, he would live right near my house. I grew up around a very high basketball IQ at a very young age and a lot of pride where he, we could have said, look, we're a small Jewish school. All right. We got no chance against anyone. Or we could say, look, he signs us the first day of practice. He goes like this, look, you know, you don't need to be here. Anyone who's here, you don't need to be here. But if you're going to be here, you're going to have to be able to do X, Y, and Z. School's from 7.30 in the morning till 6.30 at night. We have dual curriculum in a Jewish school. Half day Hebrew, half day English. Wow. After that, after that, at 6.30, we're going to have study hall. Okay, we're going to eat dinner as a team, and we're going to have practice till 9 or 10 o'clock at night. And then you're going to have to be back at 7.30 in the morning at school because coach is going to be there to make sure you're at prayer. Okay, and if you're late, you're just off the team. So he, he made it very clear, like, you don't need to be here. But if you're going to be here, it's going to have to be like this. And um, it's going to be the greatest ride of your life because we're not going to back down and we're going to go after the best teams. And that's what he did. We were a small Jewish school, but he, he scheduled games against Mount St. Joe's against all the top teams in, in Baltimore. And, 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 and we took a lot of pride in that. And then we would just leave the school, a very small school. And he would just go like this. Don't do anything to embarrass your creator. And that's how, it, and we would just, we, we'd go, we go to the games with so much pride with the attitude. Yeah. You know, we don't have the height. We might not have the athleticism, but we're a team. Everyone knows their role and we're going to give it our best shot and let's see what happens. And, and we were able to do a really good job. I think we went 65 and 10, um, my uh, 10th and 11th grade year. Wow. There's a lot of things that jump out at me right there. First, the, um, <laughs> basically two days of school in one part Hebrew, part uh, English that, that blows my mind. I'm sure it would blow any kid in an American school system is mind out of the water and, and, and they would quit after a week, I'm sure. Um, but the second thing that really jumps out at me is, is the relationship and, and the value that you still place on with your high school coach. I was lucky enough to, to have a great high school coach and a great experience as well. We're friends now to this day. You've transitioned now after playing some professional basketball in Israel to doing a lot of coaching and mentoring yourself. What are the biggest keys that you try to impart on kids that you work with? Yeah, so on the court, uh, I, I really try to teach the game as much as possible, the way it was taught to me. Now, I know the game's different and the game is flying forward and it's, it's, it's a whole new game out there. But I try on the court to at least give them the basics, you know, how to, how to read the floor. You know, that's what, what my coach, you know, how to read the floor, not to be robotic, you know, read the defense, you know, make your teammates better, like try to play off the ball as much as possible. I know that's very, very rare nowadays. Everything's like pick and roll. Everything's so ball conscious, but I really try to teach the kids at least the basics of, of how to play the right way. And then what happens after that, they, they could go for it. And then, you know, off the court, it's the same thing that the universal messages of believing in yourself, you know, being respectful, respecting the game, respecting everybody around you, um, being resilient, you know, all these things, because, you know, that's the gift of basketball, because when the game's over, that's what lasts with you. It's the work ethic, the time management, the relationships, the communication, you know, the, winning every day, winning one game at a time, you know, these are the things that last forever. And that's what I'm forever grateful for. That's what basketball gave me. And that's what I'd like to share with, with the players that I work with now. There's a lot that's said in the, in the U S about AAU, the youth basketball culture, you kind of touched on it a little bit with the, or we did with the social media um, and, and the attention and, and how you, you would watch games 
go out during halftime, come back in, watch the, the, the rest of it. The game seems to be taught in snippets now here in the States. There's a lot of highlights. Um, there's not the depth of understanding, unfortunately, at times that I would like to see. But then you look at the international game. You see the the overall skill set that guys like Nikola Jokic and, and Luka Doncic have. What's the uh, Israeli like youth basketball scene like? How would you compare that or or contrast it to the U.S. game? Even though you've it's been a while since you you spent time in the U.S. basketball system. Right. So um, I remember being at NBA camp in eleventh grade, and Hubie Brown came in, Jim, the broadcaster. And some of our guys were like leaning back on their hands, like they weren't sitting up when he walked in the gym. And he just went off. He just went <laughs> off. He's like, I just got back from Europe. He's like, I just landed from Europe. This was like 1999, 2000. He's like, I'm telling you, these guys are going to come over here and they're going to kick your butt. And you guys are just like leaning back on your hands. And everyone, the players kind of like smirked and laughed. Like, it, you know, European basketball didn't penetrate American basketball yet. Um, but but I really believe the NBA is going to have to totally go global soon because I just went to my son's game who's 14 now, and there's just going to be too much talent. There's going to be too much European talent that not everyone's going to be able to fit in the NBA. The, the basketball here at such a young age is, is so professional. I mean, my son's 14 watching their practices, watching the way they play, watching, you know, they're only 14. They have like a um, strength coach, they have like uh, mental mental uh, coaches, like psychologists, sports psychologists that are already helping them. Nutritionists, they're only 14 years old. They have nutritionists, their practice schedule, they have film. They're, they're running like a division one program and they're 13, 14 years old. Um, and why does that happen? What, what's going on here? Because there's no college basketball in Europe. So basically the pro team has an association with the youth academy. So the youth, youth academy is like you see, like with Luca and everything, by the time they're 15, 16, they're basically pros because they're running the same offense. They're doing what the pros are doing. There's no college basketball. They only know like one way. So that's why I believe the, the, the basketball is advancing so much here so quickly. And then the other thing is it sounds like a simple thing, but it makes so much sense is, all right, until you're in eighth grade, you play with a small basketball in Europe, like yeah. a size six. And they always lower the basket. So you see these European players, they don't have a hitch. They don't have a hitch in their shot because, you know, they're playing a low basket until like fifth or sixth grade. You know, they have a light ball until eighth grade. And by the time they're, you know, ninth or 10th, their shot is so pure. Um, so obviously the basketball in America is unbelievable. What I'm watching in the NBA right now is insane. The talent level, the skill level, the moves they're doing, we wouldn't have even thought of. Um, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. But European uh, youth basketball is very, very impressive to me. I, I, I just sat at my son's game last week and I'm like, wow, like this, I can't believe these kids are 14. I can't believe their basketball IQ. I can't believe the way they play. I can't believe the way they're acting on the bench. I can't believe the way they respect the game. I can't believe the way, the way they respect the referees, the way they respect their coach. It's so advanced um, at such a young age and it's beautiful to see. Well, I would love to to take a look at that at someday and have a firsthand experience. I had two short stints playing in Europe. One was in Italy. The other was in Germany. I had injuries, so uh, they were both cut short. But I did enjoy the, the, the camaraderie of the team and how everything was structured as opposed to the way at times it was in the NBA and, and the focus on, on team play. When, when you're coaching at your academy and you're kind of looking big picture stuff, 
how much more growth does your home country of Israel now have to go to catch up with some of the better countries basketball wise in Europe? Yeah, so Israel is a tiny country. There's only 8 million people here. It's the size of New Jersey, okay? But uh, they're making incredible strides. Israel was the first pro league to come back and have a bubble during the pandemic. And even before the NBA, they were able to finish out the season, even in that first swing of Corona. Um, it started with Omri Caspi. He was the first Israeli to make it to the NBA at a 10-year career as a dear friend of mine. Then coach David Blatt, um, Gal Mekel, uh, now Denny Avdia, he's with the, he's with the Wizards, um, and Yamadar probably play for the Celtics next year. So you're looking at a tiny country that's already making such a big impact uh, on the NBA. And, and, and not only that, how many players, you know, come either come from the NBA to play in Israel or are playing in Israel and then go back to the NBA. There's a lot of NBA GMs that I see here that are coming all the time. They're definitely looking at what's going on in Israel. And it's very exciting for such a small country. And, you know, in my academy, and one of the things I love, I love bridging uh, the gap and, and bridging communities because there's like a lot of negativity. There's a lot of stereotypes. There's a lot of things that are just aren't true that people say about Israel, that people say about different cultures around the world. And basketball is the most beautiful and proven uh, platform to bring people together. And that's one thing that I, I really strive to do, bring different people together through basketball at our camps and our clinics uh, here in Jerusalem. And um, so Israel definitely making some great strides, but I wouldn't be surprised if they make even bigger strides very quickly based on what's going on here in, in such a short amount of time. Well, I 100% agree with the comment you made about basketball being the ultimate game of bringing people together. And I think that's true, whether you're in the United States and political parties one way or the other, inner city guys versus guys that grew up maybe in the country or, you know, on a on a international level, it can bring people from from different cultures together and, and bridge a, a gap of maybe misunderstanding. So I think power sports can be so powerful. You also now, when I look at some of the things online with your website and your different interests, you got a lot of things going. You seem to be an entrepreneur. You're looking at a lot of different things. I just came across, and this is really interesting to me, a, a new basketball net. Everybody thinks that it's just the one net. You know, if it's a Globetrotter game, they might throw the red, white, and blue net up there. But um, what what was the idea behind this net, and, and what are the thoughts behind really growing this? Because I'd like you to share a little bit more about it and how it came to be and, and, and what your hopes are for it. Yeah, I'm so thankful for the opportunity. I'm so excited about it. We call it the Aviv net. Um, basically, during the lockdown, I was in the right here in our, in our living room and uh, looking at my five kids and the gym was completely shut down. We were on 100% lockdown here. There was four lockdowns in Israel. And basketball, uh, youth basketball was completely shut down. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is unbelievable. I had three camps that were canceled. And then we got an email from like the basketball association that said, hey, we're not sure when we're going to go back. But if we ever go back, each kid needs to bring their own ball to practice. We can't pass the basketball anymore because it's been proven that the bacteria uh, is on the ball and you, it transfers like from one pass to the next. So every kid's got to bring their own ball. So that first second, I was like, wow, I can't believe like where we've gotten to a point where we can't even pass the basketball anymore. But then I'm like, I love this game. I love my players. I got to think of something. And then I was like, well, what if we use the net to clean the ball? Almost like a car wash that every time the ball goes through the hoop, we'll have an antimicrobial net that'll take off the, the bacteria, dry the ball from sweat. It's been a longstanding problem anyway. Like you don't want to play with a sweaty ball. You get that 
ball in the game, someone passes you, it's like wet, you don't want to shoot it or you don't want to, you know, you don't yeah. want to dribble. So I'm like, well, what if we, what if we could create a net that has dual action of drying the ball with high performance drying materials and high performance antimicrobial materials and, and, and help the game get us back out there and keep the players safer while playing better. And that's how we created the Aviv net. And, and again, it goes back to basketball, big, resilient, going after it. So I just went from textile company, textile company, textile company. Most people are like, hey, man, we make shirts, we make pants, we make linens. We don't deal with basketball. And it was the last company, the last one that said, hey, we could do this. We have the highest tech fabrics, yarns and materials. Let's go after it. And here we are. We're already like five NBA teams are beta testing it. It's being used in Champions League. Um here in, in, in Europe, we just sent Metnets to the Mamba Academy, uh, Sports Academy in California. And I, I really believe that, that our net is going to change basketball around the world because I'm paying like $12, $13 for a standard net. For a couple more dollars, I could have a net that drives the ball and also keeps my players safe. Why wouldn't I hang that up in, in my gym or my backyard? Well, thinking like a true point guard right there, like always looking to help others, get other people involved, uh, as well as benefiting yourself. That is a tremendous story and a way to kind of figure out a problem. Um, I know the lockdown has been a frustration for so many people. Last question, Tamir, before I let you go. When you look back at your career, what's your biggest moment of joy when you look at everything that you've, you've been able to be a part of and accomplish? My, my greatest uh, moment of joy, I would say, is a couple of things. First, when I found out that they changed the schedule for me and I'd be able to live out my dream. And, and I say that because it's something that will hopefully impact people till today. You know, that's what makes it special. There's kids out there right now that have a dream and for whatever reason, they might not, they, they think they might not be able to reach it. And maybe they could say, hey, look at Tamir's story. You know, maybe it could help them in their journey. Um, so that's, that's one thing that's really special to me. Um, but the other thing I would say the greatest moment that ever happened to me was my freshman year at Towson. I had to sit out a game. It was our conference semifinal. We were trying to make it into the big dance and I had to sit out on a Friday night and I actually stayed in a different hotel than the team, because if they won on Friday night without me and they'd advance, I'd be able to play half the game on Saturday night because the Sabbath was over at halftime. So I stayed in a hotel where I could, if they won on Friday night, I could rush over and play in the second half on Saturday night. So I was kind of lonely in this hotel on Friday night. And then all of a sudden the door burst open and it was my entire team. And they say, Hey man, we won the game for you. We respect so much that you don't play in the biggest game of your life. We won this game for you. And I'm thinking to myself, here I am as like a Jewish athlete, so different than everybody else on the team. And yet these guys like dedicated the biggest win to, for me and my faith. And it just represented what basketball is all about, what life is all about. And that's a moment that I'll always remember. That's awesome. Well, Tamir, I appreciate the time. Uh, I know it, it, it took us a little bit of time to figure out what would work for you as well as for me. I'm glad I stayed up late and I know it's early in the morning uh, in Jerusalem for you, but uh, I will, I've been a big fan. It's been nice to connect. I look forward to uh, hopefully staying in touch a little bit through social media or email, whatever channels it is. So maybe at some point we'll meet face to face in Jerusalem, because that is a bucket list place for me to get to at some point. But thanks for the time. Thank you. Looking for many years of friendship. God bless you and your family and looking forward to being in touch. Thank you so much. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.